Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. We're so thankful that you chose to join us for worship this morning. Uh, Good gracious. Uh, It's going to be pretty easy to preach uh, after that. Uh, What an incredible testimony uh, to God's goodness, even to the far reaches of our nation in Alaska. Uh, Worship was amazing. And Hannah, you can pray for me uh, anytime. Uh, So good to hear uh, just from Chase and Noah about the Alaska trip. Uh, in part because we want to be a church that sends people out uh, to places where the gospel needs to be heard. And also, I just want to remind you, we also want to be a church that sends you out uh, every single week uh, to neighborhoods and cul-de-sacs and apartment complexes and dorm rooms all over Cobb County. Uh, so it's good good to hear how God's at work uh, here uh, and, then, and then all the way to Alaska and beyond. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, you could turn to Matthew chapter 5. Just a few moments, we're going to pick up in verse 21. So Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 21. I hear Mercy Hill, feel free to pull out your paper copy of the Scripture. That's amazing. If you got it on a phone or an iPad or whatever, you can uh, look it up on there too. Uh, so any way we can to help you get the Scripture in front of you, we want to be a part of doing that. Uh, so we launched uh, Mercy Hill Church uh, officially, um, August uh, 2016, uh, we uh, started earlier than that, about a year before that, uh, with eight of us meeting in our living room. Uh, and so that original eight were a bunch of friends uh, that were, we were very, very close with. Uh, and as things grew and as God worked, we just kind of moved more and more uh, towards having uh, sort of what we have today. So 2016, we started publicly meeting for worship uh, weekly. Uh, we were then meeting at another local church in the evenings. Then we moved to a middle school, and uh, things were going very, very well. Uh, And then in May 2017, after we'd really only been up and running for, you know, about uh, nine or ten months, uh, two of my best friends who helped us start the church uh, gave us the news that they were moving on, that uh, their jobs, uh, actually their wives' jobs in both instances, were causing them to uh, to move to different locations, uh, one to Orlando, uh, one back to, uh, to middle Georgia. Uh, and that was like a, uh, started a chain reaction that we just couldn't stop. Uh, and so for the next probably three months, about two dozen adults uh, who we had spent the past year in investing in and, and equipping and uh, key leaders in our church all moved for job changes. It was one of the wildest things I've ever been a part of in my entire life. And I think I could tell you uh, in that moment, I handled things f- fairly well. Uh, but then later that fall, Uh, The stress of church planning, uh, the stress of doing it without all these key leaders, uh, honestly just got the best of me. And over time, I began to be just consumed with anger. Uh, I felt like I was always on the brink. Uh, Frustration was always bubbling below the surface. Uh, I knew I needed some help when one day uh, we're in a crowded location with my family and I thought to myself, it would be really amazing if someone would say something inappropriate to my wife so I would have an excuse to just pummel someone. And I thought, this is probably not healthy. (laughs) But anger is like that. Anger is often the slow fuse that consumes us 
and then it can overtake us in a moment. I don't know if you've ever experienced that sort of anger in your life before, but that's what Jesus is addressing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who are new, let me catch you up. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' teaching on what it means to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. He's asking this question, what does it look like for a people to live the way that God designed them to live? If that's the question, the Sermon on the Mount is the answer. So Jesus is calling people to live out this life of flourishing or this life according to God's design. This life we discovered in the, week, in the first week uh, that we studied the Sermon on the Mount is much more about our inward character than it is about our outward circumstances. And right before this passage, Jesus just kind of leveled everybody uh, when he said that our righteousness has to exceed the very best people that you know at righteousness, that God's standards is incredibly high for us. Last week, we saw that God's law is good and useful for us. What God says to us about who he is and what he requires of us is good, but it's limited. It can point out our sin, but it can't help us obey it. And you might remember the illustration I used was a speed limit sign, right? A speed limit sign can let me know when I am breaking the law, which I do frequently in that area. But that speed limit sign can't give me what I need to obey the law, that that is a heart issue. And so with that in mind, Jesus starts to, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, dive into heart issues. That's where we're going to pick up verse 21. So what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So verse 21, we see a a pattern that Jesus is going to use all the way throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Specifically here, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. He's quoting from the Ten Commandments. Now, remember what he just said. He just said that the Ten Commandments, God's law, is good, and he didn't come to abolish it. That's what we talked about last week. So Jesus here isn't trying to minimize the Ten Commandments. Instead, he's trying to maximize them. He's showing us that we don't go far enough in our understanding of God's law. And he's using this pattern, you have heard it said, but I say to you, to make that obvious to us. To make it apparent that we have a tendency to focus on external behaviors and to ignore our hearts. To ignore our desires, to ignore our thoughts. What Jesus is doing is Jesus is giving us a blueprint for being fully human. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is. A description of the way it means to be fully alive, fully human, the way that God designed people to live. And this blueprint goes much, much deeper than just external behavior. Uh, Just like blueprints for a construction project, right? If you've ever seen blueprints for a construction project, it's more than just sketches of the exterior of the building. Instead, it includes a design for the foundation, electrical system, plumbing, and more. So Jesus here is using this pattern to show us that being fully human is much more than just avoiding certain sins or behaviors. Instead, he is pushing in that these commandments are not just prohibitions, but they get after who we are at the very heart. He's showing us that righteousness requires more than not just breaking the laws with our actions, but we have to actually conform to God's law with our thoughts, our words, and our desires. So then here's where he starts, you shall not murder. Now, of course, 
A murder is the external behavior that people have used for all of history to justify themselves, right? This is the way we say, I'm a good person. It's not like I killed anybody. I'm not that bad. I'm not Charles Manson bad or O.J. Simpson bad or Ted Bundy bad. That's not me. I'm a pretty decent human being. Now, the reason that we want to defend ourselves, especially when it comes to murder, is murder is an incredibly heinous crime. It's nearly universally accepted as a severe transgression. We all can see clearly that murder is treating life as trivial when life is actually precious. Murder is taking something that doesn't belong to you. It's saying, I have the power over the lifespan of someone else. I get to decide your future. Murder is an extreme form of rebellion against God. Think about it. It is saying, I want to be like God so much that I want the power over the lifespan of another human being. It is, in essence, asserting ourselves in a place where only God should reside. Deciding someone else's future and life. And the scriptures consistently teach us that life, all of life is precious and that the authority over life belongs to God and God alone. That you and I don't have the right to take the life of someone else. If you murder someone, Jesus says, you're liable to judgment. What he means is you have to stand trial. You'll be held accountable. You'll have to give an account for your actions. You'll face the consequences of what you've done. You'll be punished and you'll deserve it. And we'd all respond, well, of course that's true. That's what we all want. We want justice for families of people who've been murdered. We're all outraged at senseless killings, like school shootings and police brutality. The immorality of murder is so apparent in our world that even people who are not particularly religious or have no connection to the teachings of Jesus and don't care about the Ten Commandments and no commitment to any sort of universal truth or standard of objective morality would all say murder is wrong. And would all say the one who wrongly takes a life deserves to face steep consequences for their actions. That part's easy. And then we get to verse 22, where Jesus totally flips the script on us to say, here's what I'm going to say to you. Everyone who's ever been angry with a brother is liable to judgment. Whoever uses their words to insult a brother is liable to the council, should stand trial for their actions. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says we violate the commandment to not murder when we direct our anger at another person. Either in our hearts or verbally out loud with our words. Now, we all experience the emotion of anger. And we know from the scripture there is a righteous anger. We see Jesus in the gospels get angry. We've experienced probably righteous anger in our own lives. This idea of righteous anger is a God-centered anger. What we mean by righteous anger is that we place in our anger God in his rightful place. It comes from a fear or proper respect of the Lord and is good for other people. We should be angry at human trafficking. We should be angry at police brutality. We should be angry at corruption in the highest levels of our government. We should be angry at all of these things. That is right and good. But this anger, this anger against a brother is personal. It leads in the text to insults and name calling and personal attacks. While righteous anger is God-centered, focused on justice and the good of our neighbors, 
What Jesus is talking about here is a self-centered or me-centered anger. And this is the connection with murder. Murder is the height of selfishness. What I want trumps your life. And me-centered anger is the same. It's putting my wants, my desires, my preferred outcomes above the good of another person. John Stott says, anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. We unleash our anger when our need to be in control is violated. We want other people to do what we want them to do. Nothing causes us more anger than when another person is not obeying our sovereign rule. It's not what I said. Should have done something differently. We get angry when the coach isn't playing our kid at the position that we think is best. We get angry when the professor doesn't grade in the way that we think that they should grade. Middle school, high school students, we get angry when our our parents have a different idea about what is best for us. We don't like not being in control. And as when Stott says, when somebody stands in our way, we unleash our anger on them. Sometimes anger comes from our own insecurities. Our own lacks can consume us with anger. We feel that another person or another idea is a threat to who we are and our own worth. And so we want to fight back and unleash our fury on someone else. That might be a boss who we don't think values our work or our families who aren't affirming enough with our decision making can lead us to anger. And our frustration can boil over when things don't work out according to our preferences, when that idiot cuts us off in traffic, when our kids don't load the dishwasher the way that we want them to load the dishwasher, when our spouse isn't as emotionally available as we like them to be, or when our spouse isn't as sexually available as we'd prefer, that comes out as anger. And that's what I was experiencing in my life, 2017 and 2018, for far too long. I couldn't control my circumstances. I couldn't make decisions for other people. And I was frustrated. Often what happens for most of us is we express our anger through words, what Jesus says in the text. We insult and name call. We use our words to assassinate, taking not the actual life of an image bearer, but trying to rob them of their dignity and worth. And Jesus says then this big idea. A heart that is angry with others is under judgment, just like hands that murder others. Did you catch that? A heart that is angry with others, Jesus says, is under judgment, just like hands that murder others. That a heart full of anger is not living by God's design. This is not what it looks like to be a human We're not constructing our lives according to God's blueprint. N.T. Wright says, every time you decide to let your anger smolder on inside of you, you are becoming a little less than fully human. You're deciding to belittle yourself. He's saying that our anger can consume us. and doesn't lead us to the flourishing life according to God's design, but away from God's design for people. Anger is not conforming to God's standard, just like we talked about last week. God has a righteous standard for people, a way that he intends for us to live, a requirement of us. And Jesus is teaching here as a mirror, showing us the very depths of our heart, holding up a mirror to us saying, this is who you truly are. Not the you that you try to craft for others to see, 
not the you that your external behaviors might say you are, but who you are at the heart. And heart full of anger, Jesus said, is worthy of judgment. Me-centered anger puts me on the outs with God. It is worthy to be judged by the people around me and by God himself. And Jesus used incredibly strong language. He says it leads us to hell. Now, there's a place right outside of Jerusalem called Gehenna. It's just a, basically a massive burning trash dump outside the city. That seems to be what Jesus is referring to here. You get the mental image. If you continue to allow that anger to burn inside of you and consume you, there's only going to be one place left where you belong. Completely consumed, apart from God, alone and isolated in the hell of fire. Now, I don't think any of us really love anger. And certainly most of us don't want where anger leads to be under God's judgment. So what do we do? Instead of being consumed with our anger, Jesus says we should be reconciled in our relationships. That's what happens next in the text. Murder is taking someone's life. Anger is the taking of a healthy relationship. And so he gives us two examples how we should respond. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Wow. Wow. This is an amazing picture. Here it is. So Jewish man or woman at the temple, ready to make a, a sacrifice or bring a gift at the altar before God. This person is engaging in worship as God has prescribed. They're there to make sure that they're right with God. And then this person remembers that they have a brother or a friend or a coworker who has something against them. That assumes that the person in the story is the one who is in the wrong. And what does Jesus say? So stop the ceremony of making yourself right with God. Instead, go and make yourself right with the other person. Or we could say it this way. Set aside making yourself right with God to make yourself right with others. That's crazy. Even if you're in the middle, Jesus is saying, of an act of worship, the priority should still be making things right with other people. That personal reconciliation takes precedence even over our worship. Or maybe we could think about it this way. We can't worship God rightly if we're not right with the people around us. Our hearts, Jesus is saying, are more important than our ceremonies. Which is actually consistently what the scripture has taught through the prophets. Like how many times have we heard? Man, don't bring me your bulls and goats. I want your hearts. So Jesus is giving another version of that. I mean, going through the motions in a worship service does not do us any good. We have to set aside even an act of worship, being right with God in order to be right with others. Or we could say it this way, being right with God necessarily means that we are right with others. Now, overcoming this sort of me-centered anger requires courage, just like a, a soldier fighting to defend the lives of his fellow soldiers must press on in courage, those of us who want to live according to God's design or God's blueprint must fight with great courage for the lives of the people around us. 
Can you imagine the sort of courage that would be required in this moment? People are like, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why are you leaving? You're just going to leave that here? You're in your heart thinking, everybody's looking at me. Nobody knows what I'm doing. This is confusing. This is awkward. This is weird. But the conviction of knowing that I have to be right with others presses us on to act with courage. And we can't give ourselves to petty insults and name calling. We can't give ourselves to angry outbursts and then move on like nothing happened. We can't be a people who allow our anger to consume us. We must, Jesus says, make things right with other people. And then he gives us a second example, verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. So here's this situation. The hearer of the message or the, the person that Jesus is talking to is in the wrong. How do we know that? Because evidently there's enough evidence against them that if they go to court, they're the ones going to jail. So much so that they're going to have to repay every single last penny of the debt that they owe in this particular situation. So to the person in the wrong, Jesus says, don't let your anger lead to bitterness where you feel like you have to defend yourself at all times. Maybe you're saying, I can't believe so-and-so would take me to court over this. Maybe you're thinking if they would just chill out and give me a few more months, I would pay them back. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. No, no excuses. You need to make things right. Don't wait until someone tells you how to make it right. You take the initiative to make it right. This sort of anger is why custody battles and divorce get so ugly. Because the goal becomes to win, not to work it out. And the reality in every single one of our lives, out of anger and frustration and the need to justify ourselves, we often escalate conflict with other people instead of what Jesus told us to do in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers. So here Jesus is saying, don't let your anger and bitterness take over and lead you into a conflict that you have no business being in. Make it right before you even get there. Humble yourself. Set aside your need to prove you're right, to make yourself right with others, even your enemies. This story isn't about buddies. It's a story about people who have actual conflict with each other. She's saying even people who have a reason to hate you or people you have a reason to hate, and you need to make things right. It takes courage to face our own bitterness. It takes courage to humble ourselves enough to put a relationship over being right, to admit our wrong. Anger will often lead us to try to defend ourselves even when what we've done is indefensible. But God's blueprint, God's design for his people is to treasure being in the right with other people. Now, both of these examples, both of these examples require courage. That overcoming me-centered anger requires personal courage. Well, the question is, where do we get that sort of courage from? Where do we get that sort of motivation from? Why should this be important? Because both of these examples 
also point us to Jesus. See, Jesus didn't leave a gift at the altar to make things right with someone he offended. But what Jesus did do is something even more courageous, even more gracious, and even more merciful. Jesus left heaven and came to earth to make things right who were, uh, with the people who were in the wrong. Jesus paid the price by taking on flesh and becoming like one of us in order to make us right with God. He came to us. He gave his life as a gift for us. And so the power of the good news of Jesus helps to change our hearts where we see when I was in the wrong, when I was an enemy of God, Jesus came for me. Jesus set aside heaven to pursue me. Jesus laid down his life as a gift on the altar for me in my place. And if Jesus is willing to do that for me, then certainly I could be the sort of person that follows Jesus and doing that for others, especially when I'm the one in the wrong. Jesus wasn't on trial. We were on trial. And God has enough evidence to put us away forever. But Jesus is the one that came to us, met us before we got before God the judge, intervened for us on our behalf to make things right. Jesus is the one that got us out of jail time, eternal punishment, out of his immense love and grace for us. And so when we come to mustering up the courage to follow Jesus in this way, the good news is we've already experienced this sort of love. We've already experienced this sort of desire of reconciliation. We've experienced it from Jesus himself. Jesus reconciled himself to us at great cost. Even more. Even more when it comes to Jesus in this passage. Remember what we talked about last week, that God's law serves as a mirror and a chisel. That the mirror helps me see myself rightly, that I'm guilty. We stand before this passage of Jesus' teaching and go, I am guilty. I have anger in my heart. And then God's law is also a chisel to chip away our self-righteousness. We stand before this passage and we go, I'm not better than anybody else here. I used to think I was better than Ted Bundy. But then Jesus told me I wasn't. There's not much I can do about it. I used to excuse my behavior saying it's not like I murdered anyone. And then Jesus just said, actually, you did. And so this passage points us to our own incapability to meet God's righteous standard. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came 2 Corinthians 5.17, to make us into a new creation, to give us a new heart. And Jesus, when we come to faith in Christ, gives us the Holy Spirit deposited inside of our hearts, regenerating us, helping us to learn how to obey him and walk in his ways. And that Holy Spirit provides us with the courage we need, the strength we need to radically obey Christ. And the good news, the good news of this really difficult passage from Jesus is Jesus. 
that we follow a Lord and Savior who laid down his life for us in our place so that we could be right with God. And the more and more we preach the gospel to ourselves, the more and more we pray and ask God through his spirit to strengthen us to act with courage, the more and more we're able to obey this. That's the good news. So maybe today uh, you're not a follower of Jesus. You've never come to a point, time in your life where you have trusted Christ. And maybe today this passage for you has been a mirror and a chisel. You came in thinking, I'm a pretty decent dude. I'm a pretty decent person. Not like I ever killed anybody. And perhaps these words of Jesus have convicted you to the core of who you are. And you've recognized today that you don't need to just do better. You need to be rescued. You need someone to meet you on the way to the trial. You need someone to get to you before you get under God's judgment. And let me just say to you, that person is Jesus. And you can get out from underneath God's judgment. And you could be restored in a right relationship with God today by trusting Christ. And my prayer is that you would consider it. And today would be a day where you would trust Jesus to save you. For those of us who are believers, this passage calls us to repentance. Repentance just means to change, to change our mind, to change our direction. If you're anything like me, I'm pretty easy to be given into anger. Man, God's so gracious to us to love us and forgive us, to restore us, even in the middle of our anger. And so Christian, today, I would just encourage you to set your anger aside. If there is a relationship that you need to make right, today's the day to do it. I mean, you might need to send a text message, slip out in the lobby and make a phone call to obey Jesus this morning. To pursue making things right with someone else before you even sing another line. My prayer for you and my prayer for me is today would be the day where we encourage, follow Christ's example, and take seriously making things right relationally with others. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.